Uh, let's just take a moment and address the elephant in the room. Get out of the way. Address the elephant in the room. Yes, I have seen the Black Widow trailer, and it was good. I liked it a lot. It looks good. For those of us that were concerned, y'all take yourselves too seriously. People looked up like, what's going on? Oh, man. But if there is an elephant in the room, we do. We will feed it peanuts from time to time, so we are not afraid to do that. All right, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Last week, we took just a quick break to have a service devoted to Thanksgiving, which I was very grateful for. It was just people coming up on the microphone and thanking God for different things. And a number of people that are in this room today came up, took the mic, both through tears, through joy, uh, through a number of different emotions, just thanked God. And it was good. It was good for my soul. And a lot of people said it was good for them as well. So thank you for participating in that. The week prior to that, we had finished Romans 8, verses 5 through 11. And today we're going to pick, pick up where we left off. And, and because we left off at the end of that verse, that, that portion of Scripture talking about, well, Paul actually acknowledging that, you know, that this distinction between being in the flesh and being in the spirit. And he made some, some strong statements about, you know, in verse 9, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you. And he, and he says, if, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. So throughout this letter, there's been sort of this dichotomy of in the flesh and in the Spirit. And what, what does that look like? And there's been tension. And I know for us on a practical level, sometimes it can be awkward. Like, how do I know I'm in the flesh and in the Spirit? And we've tried in, in different ways, different ways that the, the Scripture has laid this out and trying to explain that. Well, we find ourselves today at another couple verses that have this dichotomy that I think allow us to really zoom in in a way that's a little bit more specific to answer this, this question. So I'm going to read the verses we're going to do today, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Beginning in verse 12 of Romans 8, he says this, So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are sons of God. Stop. We're going to do just these three verses, not because it's the best place to stop in terms of the train of thought. That's typically how you break down what amount of verses you're going to preach. You try to figure out what is the train of thought that he's communicating, and let me try to stop there and capture that and then communicate it to us. So you could keep going because I highly doubt that in writing any of these letters, any of the writers of those letters wrote three verses and was like, oh, I'm going to stop there and pick up next Sunday, you know. They're writing inspired by God what God has intended 
for his people to hear. But obviously, because it's God and it's God's word, too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. And so I want to stop here because these three verses and the next three verses say something vital for the Christian life. And I want to take a moment and slow down so that we can zoom in and understand what's exactly being stated here. Now, Romans 8 has a lot of repetition. He's, he's, you know, they say repetition is the father of learning, the mother of learning if you're a feminist. But there is a sense where this idea that saying the same thing over and over again for us seems like, okay, we've heard that before. But from God's perspective, he doesn't feel that way. He feels like in order for people to actually understand this and remember this and to believe this, I have to restate this, rephrase this, and reiterate this. So often he will say the same thing with a slightly different angle or with a little bit more oomph to make sure that the people who he's talking to genuinely believe it. As the song from, as the lyric from the song Rock of Ages where it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. That is a very good description of what it's like to be a Christian. We just forget the simple things. We forget what the fruits of the Spirit, which ones we're supposed to enact in said moments. So this reality of Communicating these things over is not to bore us, but to make sure that we are confident in what God has said to those of us who actually have faith in Jesus Christ. And I would say repetition in scripture means emphasis. It's paramount that Christians believe the truths that are here, because like many of us have seen and know of people who at one point professed to be Christians and walked away from the faith at some point in time. We get our faith rocked, like, what happened? How do I know that I'm a Christian if this person can do that? Well, this passage, I think, gives some insight into what happened and why some people do do that. Now, there's a main theme I want to give you today. These three words are going to be sort of the, the, the main theme of what we're getting at. And this is the main theme of really what it means to be a Christian in terms of how we live. And it's these three words, identity informs obedience. Identity informs obedience. God saved you and then said, obey me. You don't obey God to get saved. You obey because you are saved. That's the standard pattern. Identity informs obedience. That's the standard pattern. Look at the, the book of Exodus. You see God save Israel, bring them through the wilderness, and then he gives them the Ten Commandments. This is the pattern. Your identity informs your obedience. You fight temptation because of who you are. This is important. It seems like a duh statement. But it actually is not. And we'll see as we get a little bit more into the passage. Let's pray and then jump in. Father, thank you for just the reality of your word and this precious letter in, the, in Romans. Thank you that you inspired Paul to write specifically and directly to this church. But you knowing 
that you would preserve his words for the church, for this church this morning. Today I speak to those who are committed members to this church, those who are visiting for the first time, and those who are in process of evaluating. But I speak to all those, though, whoever is a believer, whether they are a member of this church or some other church, there's a claim that this passage has on their lives. And so I pray as we, as we look through the lens of our, our identity informing our obedience, that this would make much more clearer sense as we get to the end of these three verses. And while these are somewhat self-explanatory, there is a depth here that we can understand that will help us. So, Father, I pray that you would, that whatever I say that is true of this passage and true of where we are as a church, that we would remember every, every second, every word, every syllable, and apply it to our lives. And whatever I say that's an error, please forgive me, and would you allow it to be forgotten, for it would not be beneficial to apply error. Lord, this is a great responsibility, and I thank you and ask you for help with this opportunity. In your name we pray. Amen. Beginning in verse... 12, he starts off and says, so then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So he begins this, this, this section of verses with the identity language. In fact, when he says brothers and sisters, or maybe your translation just says brothers, it's obviously not just talking to the male believers, but my translation says brothers and sisters. This is only the third time in the letter of Romans up to this point that he's used this reference. This is only the third time. And often in Paul's letters, he's talking to the people, but there are moments when Paul also connects himself with those he's talking to. Now, you have to understand how important that is. You know, in our day and age, there's so many pastors, so many churches, so many celebrity pastors, you know, but in this day and age, this was the Apostle Paul. The church was a new entity, and the people who were establishing the church, their names would travel. Their reputation preceded them. This is the Apostle Paul writing. And so at times, Paul understands the significance of who he is to them, and I believe these people understand the significance of who Paul is to Jesus. So when Paul writes letters... It's like we need to listen because Paul is addressing us. And there are moments where Paul will speak outside of the second personal pronoun and say what you have to do and speak in the third personal pronoun that says what we are, what we have to do. And that's intentional because that's part of his identity. Now, you think about the godliest person that you respect. I remember when I was a new believer, I went to a, 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 men's, a men's meeting. And I sat, it was my first time in a context like this. It was maybe 12 guys. And the guys just started to share some of the struggles that they had. And I remembered at the time, it was called a care group. And I remembered the care group leader sharing something that he struggled with, that I also struggled with, and I was blown away. 
like, wow, this is the care group leader, a dude that I trust and respect. I can identify with him. It actually endeared me to him, and even though culturally speaking, I could not connect with anybody in that group, I stayed in that group for over a year or two because I identified with him. This is a guy that I respected that I thought, man, and he's saying he struggles with some of the same stuff I struggle with. There was a connection. This is what Paul is doing. So then, brothers and sisters, we, we, not just you, we, together, are not obligated to live according to the flesh. He's saying we, our identity as brothers and sisters, as people who believe in Jesus Christ, our identity informs our obedience. We're not obligated. Now, your, your, your translation may say debtors. So he says we're not obligated. It means we don't have to give in to the flesh, to the temptations that we have. We're not debtors. We don't owe anything to the habits and patterns that had us standing before God in judgment. We're not obligated. We don't owe anything. I remember when I was a new believer, and I got saved, one of my first things was, I got to go back to the hood. I got to share the gospel with these dudes. But when I first went back, I wasn't strong enough to resist like getting high. And I felt like in order to connect with them on some level, like I'm obligated to interact with them on a certain level so I can relate to them. So I would go back and I was a believer in Jesus, but when they passed the blunt, I took it. I mean, and I was, at the time, <laughs> there was still zeal, it was just without wisdom. I was there to share the gospel when they would, and I would be like, man, I'd be like, all right. <laughs> hey, man, so you got to go to church, <laughs> and you got to follow the Lord, man, because that's a, <laughs> and they was like, all right. There was this obligation, right? That's one side. Let me tell you another way we feel obligated to the flesh. When we've been tempted for a while and it's not going away. When you're tempted to anger, tempted to lust, tempted to fear, and it's not going away, and the temptation keeps going, you feel obligated. You might as well give in because it's not going away. And in this sense, we feel obligated, like we owe something to it because it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere, so I might as well get rid of it somehow. So instead of resisting, I just give in, and then I get rid of the temptation, but now I've inherited the guilt. We're not obligated. We don't owe, just because this is a habit, like you don't owe anything to the personality that you have that's sinful. You know that I just tell people how. I just tell it like it is. You're not obligated to your personality if it tempts you to sin against the Lord. You're not obligated to those things. We're not obligated to the flesh because our identity, we're brothers and sisters. We are kin to Paul. We are kin to Jesus. We are sons and daughters of Abraham. We're not obligated to the flesh. This is important because what you believe, I apologize for this, this thing is, I'm just going to take it off. 
This is important because what you believe about yourself will determine how you carry yourself. Who you believe you are will determine what you do. That's just standard. Who you believe you are. Even, even, even marketing campaigns seize the moment and say stuff like, you are what you eat. You know, they pivot off of that stuff, right? It's just like, who you believe you are will inform what you do. I remember traveling and I was in an airport. I was maybe in, it was either India, maybe I was in, I was in France. I think I was at Charles de Gaulle Airport. I was somewhere, it was, a, it was not, in, it wasn't in America. And there was some issue with some guy was having a problem getting through. And he was getting irritated and upset. And then when he wasn't getting his way, here's what he yelled out. I am an American citizen. That's what he said. I am an American citizen. You better do, you better treat me. I'm an American. And he kept saying it and saying it and saying it. And then the French people that were behind me were like this. You stupid American. <laughs> and so the whole time on the flight, I just came, you stupid American. And then the guy who was golly beside me said, bro, we're Americans on the plane of a whole bunch of French people. You should probably stop saying that. And I thought, I'm a stupid American. But there was a sense that he thought, because I'm an American citizen, you better treat me a certain way. And they were like, man, you in France, fam. <laughs> we don't care. This ain't America. We don't care if you're an American citizen. He demanded a certain level of respect because who you think you are will determine how you act. Who you think you are will determine how you act. And if you don't resonate with brothers and sisters of Christ, it will show up in how we act. So what he's saying here is, listen, we're not obligated to the flesh. This is important because all of us don't have this situation, but a lot of us, you know, we grow up, we didn't grow up in the church, and we remember certain habits and patterns. There are, there are aspects where the Lord doesn't always take away all of the struggles you have when you become a Christian. So, and what he does, but it's gradual. There are going to be certain things that some of us carry until we stand before him. And the temptation to think that somehow I got to submit to these things is, is, is false. We're not obligated to live according to. Remember what that was two weeks ago? Facing toward in the name of or in relation to. Like I'm facing toward, like I'm living According to the flesh. It's a temptation. But the biblical theme is identity informs obedience. This is why Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. They know. In our culture, people can say whatever they want. But Jesus' sheep know his voice, though. You can say whatever you want. There's a lot of people that say they're Christian. And once they start telling you what they believe, I don't hear the voice. The only voice I hear is the TV show. My sheep know my voice. We are not obligated to submit to. We don't owe anything to who you were before Christ. You don't owe anything to that. Now the challenge is, 
there are times where I want to live according to the flesh. There are times where you want to live according to the flesh. There are times you're offended, you're hurt, you're angry, and it wouldn't feel right if you don't say something. Maybe that's just me. There are times it would just actually feel out of place to overlook this offense. And it could be small, like you cut me off on the road. It could be deep, like a conflict between a husband and wife. There are times where I want to, but that doesn't mean I have to. And there's a distinction. There's a difference between I want to and I have to, and it's important to separate the two. And the reason why is because we think sometimes when we want to, we've already failed, and now we have to. Just because in the flesh, I want to say this because I know it will hurt this person's feelings, doesn't mean I have to. And that's the tension. A lot of us get deceived because we think because we want to, we've already failed, so now we have to. Because I want to give it a lesson, now I have to. I failed and made that mistake plenty of times. We must remember this truth in temptation because it's the truth that when I fail, it's because I don't believe this truth. We're not obligated. You're not obligated to complain. You're not obligated to anxiety because it's something you struggled with for a long time. You're not obligated to anger because you have done that. You're not obligated to lust. You're not obligated to fear. I've said this before years past, and it's important to bring this up again now. The reason why, one of the reasons why I think this is important is because we tend to think sin is inevitable. Historically, I would have, I would have said my identity was rooted in how sinful I am, how much of a wretched sinner I am, and how much I deserve God's hell, but, but Jesus died on the cross. And it sounds like, whoa, that's great. But what happened was, for me and a number of folks who thought this way, there was a sense where we all, it, it was a tougher transition to make. You start thinking how sinful I am and that my heart's desperately wicked and all this stuff, and then you can't resist. And then it's almost like when you're really tempted, well, I'm, I'm sinful anyway. And sin is inevitable, but to be honest, that is not the way Scripture talks towards those who profess to believe. Sure, we're going to sin, but to think that sin is inevitable is to be obligated to the flesh. The overwhelming majority of the New Testament does not speak that way about Christians. Now, Thomas will permit me to go into a number of these passages, but let me just choose one of my favorites. First John 2, 1, he says this, my little children, I am writing to you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have access. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, this is the right preposition. He doesn't say, but when you sin, he says, but if you sin. And there are other verses that lean in this direction. It's not a, this isn't a preposition translational error. 
The overwhelming majority of the scriptures does not tell you as a believer that you should think, well, I'm just going to sin anyway. So because that will have a psychological impact on how we obey God. Your identity informs your obedience and what you think about yourself. What we think about ourselves. We're going to act out. Who you believe you are will determine how you carry yourself. If you believe you're an American citizen and you deserve rights, you might flip out in an international airport. <laughs> if you believe that you're a son or a daughter of Jesus and you're not obligated, even though this temptation is tough or even though I failed before. I mean, that's the biggest obligation, right? I failed in this area before and maybe repeatedly. So now I feel a sense of obligation to this particular area. From God's perspective, we're not obligated, we're not debtors to the temptations that we feel to sin. And he says something profound in verse 13. He says this, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, I'm a question asker of the scripture. And I say, well, why? Okay, we're going to die anyway. Everyone that has been born, once you've sinned once, death awaits. Right? So unless Jesus comes back and you're still alive, we're going to physically die. So why is he telling us if we live according to the flesh, we're going to die when we're already going to die because we have at times lived according to the flesh? Why is he telling us this? We're going to die unless you're alive when Jesus comes back. You're going to die already. Why is he saying that when it's inevitable? Anyway, death is inevitable. How do we process this? Well, let's think back for a moment. Let's travel back in time. Way, way back. In Genesis chapter 2, God tells Adam this. God makes everything. Light, dark is already there. He makes light, makes animals, trees, all this stuff. And then he says this to Adam. This is Genesis 2, 16 and 17. He says, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, here's the problem. Adam and Eve bit from the tree. And they didn't die that day. In fact, the scripture tells us that Adam lived to be 930 years old before he died. So either that was the longest day in recorded history. <laughs> I know the scripture says that a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. I don't think that's what he meant right here. But he told Adam, in the day you eat of it, you're going to die. But 930 years later, it became true. So it wasn't just physical death that God is referring to when he says sin causes death. 
We know this. If anything, the death clock began. But God said, in the day you eat of it, you will die. So what is he talking about? Why do we keep being told we're going to die if we sow to the flesh? How are we going to die? In what way? I think, as I've said before, you can make a strong case that this is, this is talking eternally. You will not spend eternity with the Lord. The Bible does teach of two deaths in Revelation 20. It talks about throwing the beast and the false prophet. And all those who are not found written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of burning fire, and it's called the second death. In context, it's clearly describing you're not going to spend eternity with Jesus if you sow to the flesh, only if you live according to the Spirit, if you obey the Spirit. So there is an eternal application. But I would like us to process this a bit more practically because I do think there is another death that takes place. I think when we live according to the flesh, when we obey the habits and power, when we give in to temptation consistently. Now remember, he's writing to believers. So this isn't about being a non-Christian and then being a Christian. He's talking to people who are Christians and saying, don't live according to the flesh because you'll die. So these are people that have already experienced forgiveness of their sin, have already experienced the promises of going to heaven, and he's saying here, if you live, you who believe in Jesus Christ, not non-Christians, not your neighbor, co-worker, don't think about them, he's talking about you, me. If you who profess to believe, I'm writing to you, God's perspective is saying, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So what does he mean? Well, there's one more death I think we need to consider, and I think this is actually the most common outside of physical death. I think what he's getting at is you're going to die to the desires to obey God. You are going to die little by little. Your desire to obey God will slowly dissipate. You give in to sin. Think about this. Think about this in your practical life. You give in to sin. What's the first thing you don't want to do is be in the presence of God? What's the first thing you don't want to do? The first thing you want to do is distance yourself from God. You're ashamed and all these things. And I get it. We all get there, right? We're disappointed. We're ashamed. But we distance ourselves from God. It takes a very disciplined, mature pursuit to go through that and say, Lord, I need to pray and ask you for our initial temptation is to remove ourselves from the presence of God. Now I don't read. I don't want to pray. Praying is now a little too intimate. I don't want to go to small group. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to lift my hands up. You start to die little by little. 
as you give in to the temptation's consistency. There is no genuine Christian who will live a willful life of sin and have any confidence of their conversion. In fact, whenever you're talking to someone who's struggling with being a Christian, you have to at some point ask, is there a lot of sin in your life? Are you, is there a lot of sin in your life? Because that is the confidence killer. It's the confidence in Christ killer. We die just a little bit, just a little bit. It's not big. It's not a big deal, but we die just a little bit. Now it's harder to read. Now it's harder to pray. And then the more you give in to it, the more discouraged you get, you just move away, away from God because you think God doesn't want to talk to you. You don't want to confess to anybody else. You don't want to let people know that you're struggling and you're ashamed of it. And so time goes by. And next thing you know, it's just difficult to even read a simple verse. You don't even want to, the only prayer you'll do is for other people. You don't even want to pray to God intensely because you're affected by that because you're dying to the desires to obey him. So you don't want to be around him. This is what happens. This is what happens when we give in to sin consistently. We die a little bit. We die to the desire to obey God. And for some people, they just keep dying. They keep dying. They keep dying. And then guess what? They are gone. There's a proverb that says, when a man sins, when a man sins, bring him to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. And what it means is when a person faces the consequences of their sins, they get mad at God. The more distant we get from God, the more we blame what God has declared we should do. Now, all of a sudden, it's Christianity's fault. It's the church. It's the pastor. It's the people. People followed up with you to see how you're doing and you offended. Listen, if you are a member of this church, don't pat nobody on the back that's pursuing a sinful lifestyle. Yank them by their back. You start getting offended, all of a sudden now it's, it's God's fault. No, no. It's your fault. It's my fault. In my Christian life, I failed the most in this way. Failed the most in this way. All of a sudden, it's you know they say the same things that make you laugh make you cry? The same stuff you used to love, you grow to hate. We die just a little bit more. And then it becomes an unwillingness to resist temptation. Then it seems like I can't stop. And the reality is, no. No. I just don't want to. I just don't want to. I've seen people fall back into sin that I saw them come out of. Nah. You just live according to this. You feel obligated. You feel obligated to your temptation. 
our eternal destination will largely be determined by our earthly decisions. I don't mean our works get us to heaven, but our works prove that we're heaven bound. So the scripture says if you put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit, you will live. Well, what does he mean by if by the spirit? What does he mean by if? That's a, not a grammatical error. That preposition is there. If by the spirit. You know how people say stuff, well, are we going to go someplace? Well, if it doesn't rain, that's a big if, right? You know how you say that's a big if? This is a big if. If by the spirit. The very insertion of if indicates a dynamic that may be commonly misunderstood or at least should be understood as trying to obey God in my own strength versus his strength. He's saying, if by the Spirit, which means it's possible to try to obey God without the Spirit on your own strength. So by default, the question is, which one do we do? What is our default? Or where are we headed? I think for many of us, the answer is both. It's both. We kind of do it on our own strength. Try to do it on the Lord's strength. And this is why many of us, including myself at times, just feel stuck. We feel stuck. And this is why I believe many people just walk away from the faith. We feel stuck. So then how do we obey by the spirit? How do we know the difference between our own strength and the spirit's strength? How do you know? If you're genuine, you don't want to do it on your own strength. How do you know the difference? Well, in this letter up to this point, he is contrasting the law versus the spirit, right? Contrasting like the Mosaic law, trying to obey the Mosaic law, and then the spirit of Christ. And he's saying that these are the two. He, he equates trying to obey the Mosaic law as living in the flesh and obeying Jesus, believing in Jesus and obeying that way as living in the spirit. But for us who didn't warn around for the Mosaic law, all of that stuff seems a little bit like I still don't really get it, get it. Like, I, I get it, but I don't get it, get it. You know what I'm saying? You know when you say you don't get it, get it? When you repeat it, that's emphasis, right? I don't get it, get it. So how do we, how do we, how do we, how do we see this? Well, let me, let, me, let, me, let me share with you one contrast between the Old Testament obedience and New Testament obedience. Okay, hopefully this will make sense. And hopefully this isn't heretical. And, and Carl and Dr. Lee will tell me if this is heretical. Let's look at the Ten Commandments for a second. I want you to notice something. I'm going to read them. This is the Ten Commandments. Just listen to the Ten Commandments. You can turn to Exodus 20 if you want, or just listen. Hear the Ten Commandments. This is the old, this is, in a sense, this is the law of the Old Testament. There was more than these ten, but this is the law. Okay? Do not have other gods before me. All right? Do not make an idol for yourself. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your mother and father. Do not murder. 
Do not commit adultery. Do not covet. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Do not lie. Do not steal. Okay? That was the law. Do you notice a theme there? Apart from two of those commandments, all of those are don'ts. They're put-offs. Don't do this. Put this off. Eight of the ten are don'ts. Put this off. The majority of these are put-offs. And many of these without the Spirit's help. You look at Numbers 11, God tells Moses, I'm going to give, I'm going to give certain people the Spirit that I gave you to accomplish purposes. Like the way we understand the Spirit now was not the way that they received it in the Old Testament. In fact, this is sort of what the New Covenant is about, where Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 talk about God's going to give his Spirit in the New Covenant and place his law on people's hearts. Many of these commandments, these put-offs, were to be done by willpower. Resist these things because you love and fear God. But in the spirit, in Christ, there's a different language. In the spirit, it's not don't do this. It's do this instead. So you have this language in the New Testament, put off this, but put on this. Put on this in its place. Just a couple of examples. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purified and purity of the truth. Colossians 3, 12 through 15. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. First Thessalonians 5 but since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the whole armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. We can go to Galatians 5, the distinction between the fruits of the spirit and the fruit of the flesh. There's a number of passages we can go to where somehow the language of obedience is not just put off. It's put on instead. It's not just stop doing this. It's do this instead. It's not just don't be angry. It's be kind and gentle and loving. It's not just don't give in to this. It's do this instead. This is a deep reality. This 
is a deep reality. I mean, even in Jesus' temptation, you see this sort of, he alludes to this. He doesn't say it in this way, but he, when he resists Satan, he basically is talking about what he's putting on. He's putting on the opposite of what he's doing. So when Satan tells him, listen, if anyone ever tells you that, look, he was Jesus, he was the son of God, and so he was tempted, but he was still God. <laughs> Jesus was hungry. He didn't eat for 40 days. He was hungry. Think of whatever meme you want to show somebody hungry. There is a reason why the first thing Satan said to him was, turn these stones to bread. Because he knew Jesus was hungry. And Jesus' response, it is written, quoting scripture, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You hear the put off and put on? I can put off physical bread because that's not what real life is. I'm putting on the word of God. That's my sustenance. Now, he wasn't by default saying don't eat again or literally eat scripture. Because then you'll see him surprisingly when you, you wasn't ready for. But the point he's making is there's a put off and a put on here for him. The next one, he says, look. It is written, do not test the Lord your God, right? He's putting off testing God and putting on trusting him. He says, the last one, he tells Satan, go away, Satan. <laughs> I'm laughing because I've been to churches where they'll read that, and then all of a sudden the sermon would just be about go away, Satan, and have nothing to do with And so I was just laughing at that happening recently. I watched this play out. Where some pastor was teaching, and he said, go away, Satan. You know, sometimes we just need to say, go away, Satan. And everybody got fired up, and the rest of the message was, go away, Satan. And guess what the title of the message was? Exactly. All right. It says, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Right? So he says, go away. I'm putting off listening to you, and I'm putting on listening to God. This is a reality. Now, remember, Jesus was filled with the Spirit. This is Spirit-filled obedience right here. This is, you want, you, if you want to learn, how do, I, how do I obey in the Spirit? Matthew 4 and Luke 4 are woefully overlooked. This is Spirit-filled resistance. And the reason why this is important is because we live in a culture where people make this stuff like sort of enigmatic or, or sort of Gnostic, like only a few people have this, this real spiritual sense. Now, two weeks ago, what I said was the issue is not that we don't have a weapon. It's that we don't think that we have weapons. We don't think the scripture is a weapon. But that was what Jesus's weapon was. It was, I believe what God's word says. And I'm going to use that when I'm tempted by the devil. Now, I can't prove what I'm about to say biblically, but I will almost die believing it that none of us are tempted by the devil himself. I think he's just busy doing other things to more important people. So I doubt that the devil was like, man, I'm going to go ahead and go over to Kerr house. <laughs> hey, Lord, you mind if I go over there and shake things up? I ain't Joe. You ain't Joe. The devil himself is not at your house. So if this spirit-filled obedience of believing 
trusting and reciting the scripture when I'm tempted, work for Jesus against the devil, then why do we think it won't work for us? And I have failed miserably as a Christian and as a pastor in this very thing. Let me explain why. This is how. I do things in willpower instead of real power. Let me tell you what I mean. This is how it looks like in my life. Let's say I'm struggling. I got in a conflict with my wife. I'm angry. It's nighttime. I'm in my office, and I'm angry. I'm starting to remember different things. I'm getting wound up. Here's what willpower looks like for me. Man, you know what, man? I ain't even tripping, man. Let me go ahead and watch a movie or something, man, and calm down. And so I'll throw on something, maybe a comedy, make me laugh, take away the moment of anger in that moment. Maybe I jump on the PlayStation. Maybe I work on a song or I distract myself in some way, shape, or form. And, and momentarily, the anger I felt subsides, but it was all willpower. Because the moment I see her the next morning, it's back. Because willpower will deceive you for a moment. It'll, it will carry you along to some degree. But it's not real power because I didn't put anything on. I put off the anger by watching a show instead of putting on forgiveness and kindness and gentleness by the Spirit. So then the next time I see you, game on. Willpower is not real power. And I think a lot of us fight by willpower because it's more convenient. It's more convenient. At the end of the day, I don't feel like reading. I've been doing ministry all day. This is my time. And sometimes that's when I need to read the most. That's when I need to pray the most. But for me, I don't feel like it. I got this tough boy personality like, man, I ain't tripping. I was a soldier in the street. I'm a soldier for the Lord, except I ain't using the, the weapon. You know when they say, how, how you bring a knife to a gunfight? How you bring no spirit to spiritual warfare? I failed miserably in this. And the Lord was showing me like, wow, Zag, Zag. <laughs> These last couple of days, I was like, man, I've obligated myself to the flesh based on my personality. And I resist sin more because of my personality than I do my dependence on his person. And I can tell you right now, if identity doesn't inform our obedience, then our disobedience will deform our identity. And I've done it. Sometimes I just don't believe that the weapons are real weapons. But part of our identity in Christ is recognizing that willpower is not real power. Here's what the scripture says about what you fight with. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. It says, for although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. 
since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. Listen to what it said. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive for Jesus Christ. I think people in this room don't believe that the weapons are real weapons. And you'd rather have somebody pray for you and walk away with the same power, same anticipation of sin and same discouragement than you would. Or you focus so much on the put off, you forget about the put on. The put off is the flesh. The put on is the spirit. I have failed miserably in this as your pastor I have. Our identity informs our obedience. Lastly, verse 14. For all those led by God's spirit or God's sons. Look, led by the spirit. It's not breadcrumbs, right? It just means those who have a desire to live out the fruits of the spirit or honor the Lord by what they do, those are people who are God's sons. This stuff isn't mystical. The weapons of our warfare are not mystical, they're practical. Praying, reading, fasting, those are things that God said, look, if you just trust in these things, you'll make it. Second Peter 1, 5 through 7, you grow in these qualities, says you will never fail if you grow in those qualities. Then he says if you, if you don't grow in these qualities, you've forgotten who you are. If identity doesn't inform our obedience, then our disobedience will deform our identity. And we'll die just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And I think knowing some of you, many of you, there are people in this room, some have died and some are dying. And we should seize the moment. We are not doing communion today because I want to call some of the leaders in the church up to just have a moment of prayer for any of us. To not be ashamed. Your pastor said, look, I've needed this. I needed this. I just do too much on my own strength, my own personality. And that's not real power. And there are people in here who got just struggles and struggles, and some of us have even accepted that's just how you are. That's not real power. You've forgotten that these are real weapons. Maybe you have prayed and you disappointed. You know, when Jesus, you know, it's funny. When Jesus was tempted, right, he responded with faith in the scriptures that he used against Satan without anticipating that Satan would go away. We have no proof that Jesus knew how often or how long Satan would tempt him. We have no proof. We just know he just said, I'm quoting the scripture, and that's that. Satan went away. He shows up again. He quotes the scripture. Now, on the last one, Jesus did say, 
Go away, Satan. And I'll send you a link to the sermon where the pastor started talking about go away, Satan, if you want it. <laughs> go away, Satan is a joke I'm making, but the, but the, the stuff that's not a joke is that we need to realize that the weapons that God has given us, we have to use or we won't make it. We won't make progress and we won't persevere to the end. Or you'll persevere in willpower versus real power. And you'll admire the people who seem like, man, they just got it figured out. And really those people are just like, man, I pray all the time because I need help. I read because I need. I want the band to come back up front. Or just, just yeah, the band, actually just someone on the keys. Whoever's on key. Katie, come up, please. I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to, to help us if this is true of us, whoever this is true of, that we would grow in our, by the spirit, obedience. The real power, not the willpower. And it will never be perfect, but through learning and listening, we get a little bit better, a little bit closer to that. I'm also going to pray for those who are dying or have died that by his grace that they will be made alive again by fighting, using the weapons of our warfare that are not weak but are powerful enough. And after that prayer, I'm going to call some leaders up front and have them come. And if you feel so compelled, just make your way to the front and ask for prayer. No shame. No nothing. This is real talk. Father, I thank you for your grace in, in just helping us process the scripture. The, the identity that you've given us must be what defines our obedience. It, it, it's why we obey, because you said we're sons of all, because you said we're forgiven. And yet, Lord, you know, like we know, we forget a ton of stuff. We get hurt. We get disappointed. Even by you, we think you're going to do certain things and then you don't. Or we have habits and patterns that just aren't going anywhere. Or we thought we made progress and they come back stronger than before and we just feel obligated to give in to them and just rely on your grace to forgive us one day for doing it. Instead of, instead of saying, no, we're going to fight and use the weapons that you've given us and yes, when we fail, one of your weapons is the forgiveness. But Father, I pray that you would help us to, starting with me and anyone else who feels this reality this morning, that you would help us to, to realize that we die just a little bit daily each time we give in to the flesh. It, 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 it takes away our confidence and we know that our works aren't what save us. It's Jesus' work. But you told us to obey you. And you said that we even grieve the spirit. We feel that. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be restored to confidence. Help us to commit to continuing to fight. Help us to commit to 
to, to reading and trusting. For the spirit-filled resistance and obedience of Jesus was to quote your scripture. That is our weapon. It is a double-edged sword. Help us to know it and use it. Lord, for people like me who, who distract themselves from temptation by entertainment, whether it's social media or whatever, just to distract ourselves from how we feel instead of going to you and saying, Lord, help me to put on. For the flesh, it's easy to put off in the flesh. But in the spirit, we put something in its place. May that be who we are. Lord, I pray for those who have died, who have walked away, who are here this morning for whatever reason. Lord, I pray that you would restore them to life. And while there is no shame here, may they come forward even, if that's what you have for them. May any of us come forward just to be reminded, just to have someone pray for us. There's no judgment here. You're the only judge that matters. Help us by your grace. to not feel obligated to the flesh because that is not our identity. For your glory and our good, in your name we pray. Mike and Karen, please come up front. Carl and Carla, please come up front. Ann, please come up front. LaShawn, please come up front. Kathy, please come up front. Please come up front. Ashara, please come up front. We are concluding. The ball's in your court. I believe the Lord has, to some degree, spoken this morning and would ask each of us to consider, just ask for prayer if we need it, so that we continue to let our identity inform our obedience so that our disobedience doesn't deform our identity. In Isaiah 1, 18, the song we used to sing in my old church, and I wish I could sing because I'd sing it. If I did now, it would, it would make it funny. But the verse says, come, let us reason together. It said, though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them as wool. Though they be red like crimson, I will wash them white as snow. You are released. You may come forward for prayer if you deem it necessary. Thank you for coming. Don't forget your D groups this week. We'll see you next Sunday. Please come for prayer.